Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. It's Wednesday, so it must be PMQ's Unpacked. Tim Shipman's off having his eyebrows painted on or something. So instead, Patrick Maguire will be here pausing the action live from the House of Commons to explain what's going on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. That is coming up. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Wednesday, so it must be Crampon. It's Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. So, Alice, let's start with uh, your column in The Times today. After COVID, Javid has three big Cs to tackle. And I sort of slightly misread the headline. All I could think of was CCTV, uh, which is obviously (laughs) the the, the first thing he needs to tackle in his office. But having sorted that out, explain explain for you what you think the priorities are, because they're all pretty big, the things that you think she should be tackling. But explain what you think the priorities should be for the new health secretary. Well, I felt the priorities. I've interviewed Deborah James uh, for The Times, who is the bowel babe who's had... Uh, bowel cancer for four years very badly and um, she was only given a few months left to live and she's just kept going she's quite extraordinary but she said she kept sending these plaintiff emails and texts and messages to Matt Hancock saying please do something about cancer Um, because the backlog is just astonishing and they you know half a million people who haven't presented for it in the last year so we know there are people out there who have got cancer have got the symptoms but haven't actually been you know, for an appointment or to hospital. Um, so there's a huge backlog of people who will now probably have terminal cancer. And so that's the first of the big C's is we've just got to do something about the cancer backlog now because, you know, it's becoming more and more desperate. And I think she sees she nearly died last week and she said, I just don't want other families to go through what my family's going through. So that was the first C. Then the second C is the children, which um, Saji Javid's actually always been very interested in, in sort of vulnerable children and children who are missing out on school. Um, and then the last one is the care homes, which obviously was very problematic for Matt Hancock, but now has got to be solved. And we're hoping that Sanjay Javid, having been at the Treasury, does also know where the money is and might be slightly better at getting money out of the Treasury to help with the care homes and the social care crisis. Yeah, I was struck because we, we talked about this a bit on the show on Monday and I was struck by 
the fear and perhaps even the, the sort of hint from some of those who know uh, Sajid Javi best, Salma Shah uh, was obviously a special advisor while Paul Harrison had been special advisor at Health and Jeremy Hunt, but then at number 10 uh, under Theresa May. And I wasn't wholly convinced that they thought that Sajid Javid was the person to grasp these things and make some big, difficult decisions. Well, I think his problem is that he's moved through departments. So he's now on his sixth big department. So he does move very fast. But I do remember I've interviewed him in each one. And actually, he does get up to speed very fast. So the first one, when he was culture, he'd never actually been to a ballet or the opera or art galleries and he just blitzed it um he was very funny i mean did only ever watch frozen so he had four small children so he was like you know i'm on to this and he did catch up very fast he, he is someone who gets up to speed very quickly and he did on housing actually he was the first person saying we need three hundred thousand more um houses a year far earlier than other people in the tory party I and mean, he really got that too so he does get the issues i think on the other hand he's not a massive um a sort of transformer of of and and he's not like Michael Gove where he goes in somewhere and within weeks everything's changed. I don't think he'll get that, but I think he will try on social care very hard. And I think he, you know, at the Treasury, he did know what they were doing. And you know, his junior is now, which is like is now, you know, the Chancellor who was once um, his uh, junior at the Treasury. So he will know how he operates. So hopefully, and now that he hasn't got Dom Cummings, who was his nemesis at number ten, <laughs> he might actually be able to do a bit more. What do you think, Robert? Because in a way, with mo- a lot of these issues, we know what needs to be done. Quite often it's money and major reform and selling tough things to the country. Uh, but it, quite often it's easy just to sort of knock it a bit further down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that he was uh, Rishi's boss uh, might mean that Rishi uh, trusts him to to spend the money wisely. I mean, that might be a good thing that he thinks... Well, he's a sort of it's a treasury uh, guy in at health, and uh, that might mean that he loosens the purse strings a little bit, particularly for uh, for social care. As Alice said, I would add a fourth C, uh, which is well, I was going to say obesity, but then I, I googled it and found a synonym, which is corpulence. Uh, <laughs> uh, good, good research of me, because uh, we've kind of forgotten about obesity, which we were talking about an awful lot before the pandemic, but that hasn't gone away. Uh, in fact, it was one. It was a major contributory factor in people getting more ill than they otherwise would have done with COVID. So I think that needs to be addressed as well. I'm amazed Matt Hancock. Well, I was amazed Matt Hancock didn't reply to Bowel Babe, who is a, a internet sensation. Uh, but then, as kind of we all know, he was, he was a very busy man, wasn't he? So <laughs> he, he had his hands full in many ways. He had his hands it. Full already. Uh, it's bad politics. Just apart from anything else, I mean, it's rude, but it's also just really bad politics. Just ignore. Ignore some somebody like that, and I sh- I'm sure Sajid, Sajid won't uh, make that same mistake. I mean, Alice made a good case for uh, for Javid. I thought his record in government. I didn't know a lot of that, uh, or his, that his backstory, which is pretty pretty impressive. Uh, and if that counts for, counts for anything, like he might have a chance of doing the necessary. No, I was the other thing. Oh, I was going to say the other thing he has got, which may be a disadvantage, but an advantage, is he's had a few months out, so all the others are fairly exhausted. Mm. He's actually been on the back benches yeah. and he's been following it very closely. But you wonder whether that sense of he must just have that energy now when he wants to get something done, when you haven't been able to do anything. You've been sitting back, you've been watching the pandemic. You could have been the Chancellor. He must want to get stuff done now. He must know that this is his sort of, you know, he's been given another chance and a reprieve that that it is his moment to try and do something now. Is he any good, though, Alice? Because he was, you know, he's sort of 
superficially, I know, you know he threw himself into culture and that sort of thing. He didn't really do very much at culture. It, it, business, he made a hash of the handling of the collapse of uh, the steel company's name I've forgotten. Uh, when he was on holiday, yeah. So he has been on holiday was, at the wrong moment. He was on, it, when he was at, um, uh, housing secretary, he just seemed to be in constant rounds with number 10 about the... Um, you know, what they were and weren't going to do. And I'm not sure, well, when we can now see, we're still not really building many houses. You know, that wasn't a big issue that he, he grappled with. As home I secretary, think he's incredibly... did he do a huge amount? Yeah, so actually, for, I think, funnily, it's the opposite. I think he is a very, I mean, we're not allowed to talk about hands anymore after Matt Hancock, but he is a safe pair of hands. He hasn't actually messed up anywhere. And but that, isn't, that is but important. But in a way, don't, a... don't we want like a bold pair of hands, if that's what they actually, like these these issues are so pressing and he could well, just he could he just sit there and say, I'm going to read now. in, I'm going to carry out a review, I'm going to look at it again, I'm going to take some evidence, and it'll be Christmas, and we won't have done anything about your three Cs or anything else. Well, I think, and I think he will be more bold now, and I think that, I mean, if you look around at the rest of the Cabinet, I think that the calibre of it isn't particularly high, if we're totally honest, and right. I think he is one of now, one of the most experienced people in the Cabinet. He is also, actually, quite moralistic and honourable. You're not really allowed to kind of, you know, have his attributes at the moment, but I think are quite important and will become more important. I think there will be a tipping point when people actually want someone who is fairly straightforward, honest, resigned, actually, for the right reasons rather than for the wrong reasons, and is, you know, has got definitely got the right, you know, the right priorities. He is going to go for issues like cancer. He's had a very, you know, he knows from his background how hard it is with um, both with cancer and, you know, with children and, you know, the sort of struggles that kind of ordinary families have. He's gone through as, you know, the son of a bus driver who worked night and day. He had one pound when he came over from Pakistan. He's got four brothers. They've all been phenomenally successful, the family. But they started off, you know, living in two rooms and, you know, he shared his bedroom with his mother his father and one of his brothers you mentioned how um, experienced he is compared to some of his colleagues it's a good pub quiz question this which current cabinet ministers got the longest uninterrupted stretch of service in the cabinet oh that's a good one i'll tell you uh, what i'll leave it i will come back at the end yeah oh, that's what you call teasing ahead mm. um because <laughs> um, it will surprise people i think right um let's move on because it's an extraordinary story today about um uh oxfam uh, Oxfam has defined whiteness as the overarching preservation of power and domination for the benefit of white people. In a survey on racial, racial justice, it's caused upset among staff. So this survey they've sent to the Oxfam's 1,800 staff. In, but I was amazed to be honest, it was that many people. 88% of their staff are, are white. Describes white racism as a power construct created by white nations for the benefit of white people. The doctor says white privilege is a byproduct of a racist system and as... But Oxfam does not recognise reverse racism. Uh, is this sort of thing helpful, Robert, in the sort of the conversation uh, about race? No, it's it's totally unhelpful, uh, and it's insulting to the people who, you know, give a lot of their time, uh, not just the paid staff, but the volunteers who work in Oxfam shops up and down the country, and they kind of in tantamount to being called racist by their own employers. Uh, it's it's absurd. I mean, uh, saying that uh, the only recognised, the only form of racism that should be recognised is anti is is uh, anti black racism, or that's rather that's the worst one. Like it's some kind of competition. Uh, and anyway, that's just. I mean, that's just not true. I mean, you all over the world, you've got 
you know, you've got the Hutus and the Tutsis in Africa, you've got Sunnis and Shias having a go at each other, you've got the Uyghurs being persecuted in China, you've got Hindus and Muslims in India, Pakistan, you've got anti-Semitism. I mean, the, the idea of trying to say white on black racism is the, is the worst or only form of racism is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, it's it's a, it's becoming a problem. A lot of uh, several of these uh, estimable, formerly estimable organisations. I'm thinking of Stonewall uh, and Amnesty, with its decision not to uh, not to upgrade uh, Navalny to uh, political prison, uh, political prisoner status. And now Oxfam seem to have been taken over by the sort of people who took over the Labour Party not too long ago, and they and they do. I think they're doing a lot of damage. Uh, I think. So to answer your question, no, it's the opposite of helpful. What did you think, Alice, when you read this story? I just think that Ausfam's completely lost its way and it's virtue signalling. It's trying to say that, you know, we're on the right side. But actually what happens is all the people who are working in their small shops, all the people who really need their help, their money around the world, you don't feel are getting any attention. It's all very introverted, very self-obsessed and... Actually, if I was going to give money, I wouldn't be giving it to Oxfam now. And that is going to be a problem for it. Increasingly, people are going to look at it and think, if this is what you're spending your money on, and this is what you're so obsessed by who you are and what you are and finding yourself and not by trying to help other people and trying to get, you know, really just get aid out there is what you need to do. You don't need vast amounts of staff to do it. You need, you're, you're there to help other people, not to think about yourselves. And at the moment, what they're doing is just navel gazing the whole time. Oxfam's got a rather larger problem which it should be addressing, which uh, we've dealt with in the paper quite regularly, which is that it's employing a, several of uh, its staff around uh, sexual predators. They're, yeah. using, they're, they're using their position. There was an inquiry in Haiti last year, uh, and there was a, a couple of people sacked in the DRC uh, earlier this year, I think. Uh, people who had just been uh, abusing their position to... For, uh, to for sexual exploitation, uh, that's the kind of thing that Oxfam should be looking. I mean, so I mean that would have prevented me giving money to Oxfam even before I heard this nonsense. Uh, and this is further evidence that, it, like Alice says, it's it's, it's lost its way. Uh, it does also that thing of lumping, which I think uh, everyone I know resents of lumping all ethnic minorities into one group. Uh, like there's all white people and there's everybody else. Uh, and that's, that's just not the way the world is. Uh, there are as significant differences between uh, British Asians and British Blacks or British Jews or, or British Muslims, British, British Asian Muslims, British Asian Hindus, as there are between uh, those people and people with a white skin. Uh, it's... It's it's madness, and it's just not what they should be doing. And it's also indecipherable. It reads like a, a it reads like a, a, a really kind of poor M. Phil <laughs> from the nineteen seventies. I must admit, I was amazed. It, you know, there's clearly trying to be very uh, right on uh, survey from Oxfam. The the um, response asked to identify their racial profile, and there are literally two options. There's basically there is white or black, indigenous, or mm. as a person of color or black, Asian, or minority. So it's literally white and everyone else. And there's some people working in Oxfam charity shops saying they feel under attack for being white, English, and voting leave. And I mean, that's, you know, people volunteering, working in charity shops, do it trying to do some good. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, and they're, it's just... just I mean, there's just... Lots, lots of charitably-minded people out there. I mean, some of them might even vote Tory. 
Well, exactly, but, exactly. Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson there, and of course, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley. And Patrick Maguire. Red Box editor of the Times, Patrick Maguire. So what do we think... What do we think Keir Starmer's likely to go on? We were slightly... Tim Shipman and I were slightly blindsided last week when he did, he did six not terribly enlightening questions, on low rape convictions, which um, actually he did, after six questions, manage to elicit an apology from Boris Johnson, which was a bit of a surprise. What do you think will go on this time? So the thinking in the Labour leader's office, or what's left of it, is that the Matt Hancock revelations have basically lowered the bar for for questions, uh, stories, etc. on COVID. So it wouldn't surprise me if they revived some of their stuff on uh, COVID contracts, for instance. There's a real feeling that now Labour can, not to diminish the importance of these stories, but sort of take out the trash that they failed to cut through. Also, schools is obviously a big issue. And given that it's the Batley and Spend by-election tomorrow, maybe we'll see a couple of questions on foreign affairs, though I doubt it. I don't think Labour would want to lean into the idea that they are... Uh, climbing into the gutter with George Galloway. But I reckon COVID, schools, um, you know, miscellaneous is probably the likeliest. And you're right, because to some extent the Labour Party have tried to, at various times, get the sort of cronyism thing going. And so far, at least, the reaction from the public seems to have been largely, there was a crisis on... You get whoever you can to help out. I don't really or I don't really understand. It's a bit complicated, uh, but the the Matt Hancock thing personifies that. That uh, you know, it's a cabinet minister uh, and his lover who's on the payroll. Yes, and it's that phrase. Um, one rule for them, right? Matt, Han- as you say, Matt Hancock is the living embodiment of that perception of double standards. The COVID contracts, you can also peg to that. Also, the revelations uh, yesterday of the new quarantine policy, not just for the UEFA big weeks, as the Times revealed the other week, um, but for businessmen uh, who are you know, making high net worth um, transactions for the, for the good of the economy. It wouldn't surprise me if Starmer tied all of those together. Uh, we're just keeping an eye on the uh, the House of Commons and uh, Lindsay Hoyle, the uh, Commons Speaker, is making a, a statement. So we'll be a few minutes before we get to uh, the first uh, questions. I think there's one backbench question before we get to uh, Keir Starmer. It's a tough old week for Keir Starmer, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned the fact that he's, you know, the the, the thinking in his uh, team. I mean, there's not much of the team left. Director of Communications is gone. Deputy Director of Communications is gone. Uh, his political director, Jenny Chapman, has been moved uh, 
uh, chief of staff has gone. Um, what what do we think sort of Keir Starmer 2.0 will look like? Um, I think there is... The main critique you hear from Labour people was the inexperience of that team. I think I think the, the main difference will just be a certain sharpness. Uh, you know, I think he will... Labour will comment on things quicker. They will... You know, often, you know, you've been sat here and the question is, well, hang on, this thing happened a day ago. Labour are nowhere. Where is Keir Starmer? I think in the immediate term, it will just be to get back on the pitch. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if we had a, a sharp set of punchy topical questions from Keir Starmer this week. Uh, we can, uh, in the last uh, couple of minutes, uh, uh, Boris Johnson's kicked things off by saying he wants to congratulate Gareth Southgate and his team on their 2-0 win against Germany at Wembley last night. Uh, the first time the team have beaten Germany in 55 years in a knockout game. We wish them all the best for, uh, against Ukraine on Saturday. We're hoping uh, against hope. This time, finally, football is coming home. So that took all of about eight seconds before Boris Johnson uh, brought that up. It's interesting, the interaction between football and uh, politics, because if, if England win, will that have an impact on sort of the public mood and, uh, and politics, do you think? Well, I mean, Harold Wilson... Um, I once wrote this in Red Box, and Joe Haynes, Harold Wilson's former press secretary, sent me a very angry email saying this was untrue. But, you know, Harold Wilson allegedly thought so. When England were playing Germany, I think it was in the uh, 1970 World Cup, he was desperate uh, for polling day not to clash in case they lost and and, and he subsequently lost uh, the election or if it depressed turnout. You know, I think England winning the Euros with a basically full stadium at Wembley, would, regardless of anything else that's happened, sort of, uh, sort of, you know, chime with Boris Johnson's whole summer of unlocking, not quite summer of love, although I think every summer's a summer of love for the Prime Minister. Um, <laughs> but yes, I think, you know, that sort of buoyant, irrepressible optimism will, um, it'll be a good backdrop for that. And was it, so it's on the 11th, isn't the fight? I mean, we've got a long way to go yet, but, you know, it's coming, what, a week before all restrictions are supposed to be lifted. The weather might even improve. Suddenly things might be suddenly looking a bit, uh, looking a bit better. Uh, we are waiting to go live to the House of Commons. Keir Starmer. Position, Keir Starmer. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I join your um, comments and sentiments about Ian Davis and wish him the very best um, from all of us in this House? Can I also congratulate the England team um, for yesterday's performance? Having been at Wembley for the Euro 96 semi-final and experienced first-hand the agony of that defeat, yesterday's result was truly um, incredible. Uh, And I know the whole house will wish the team the very best of luck on Saturday. The whole house uh, will wish them the best of luck on Saturday, I'm sure. Mr Speaker, why didn't the Prime Minister sack the former Health Secretary on Friday morning? Uh, nice Mr. pointed Speaker, question there. Uh, we had a. I read the story in common with uh, you and uh, everybody else on on Friday, and we had a new health secretary in place by Saturday, uh, Mr. Speaker. Which I think, given that we given that we have a pandemic, I think uh, to move from one health secretary to the next uh, w- with that uh, speed uh, was was fast, Mr. Speaker. But it wasn't as fast as the vaccine rollout, uh, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> Uh, which is which is now going so fast that we've done in this week half of the under 30s, half of the under 30s, Mr. Speaker, have now had their first jab, and that is speed. Here, start. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, almost as fast as Boris Johnson moving off the question of Matt Hancock there. Well, it's strange. I mean, two things strike me about that uh, question and answer. The first, as you say, very pointed, difficult for the Prime Minister to evade, although he managed to. Um, One, this very strange line from Boris Johnson, who almost wants to say he sat Matt Hancock and is doing his best to say so in terms. Obviously, that's completely at odds with the... Um, reality. The, yes, exactly. The reality <laughs> and the slightly gloopy uh, tributes paid by Matt Hancock uh, to Matt Hancock from Number 10 and his cabinet colleagues. The second thing is, on this vaccine rollout, yes, um, oh, the vaccine rollout was fantastically quick, he says, but it's not so quick anymore. It'd be interesting to see if Keir Starmer comes back and says, actually, the pace is really slow. In the Times this morning, there was a story about supplies of Pfizer and Moderna being constrained. We can't speed up. Uh, obviously, the link between hospitalizations and cases is weakening and other Times exclusive this morning. God, buy the paper. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but it'd be interesting to see if Keir Starmer says, actually, for the first time, because obviously Labour's line on this has always been, yes, you've done brilliantly on X, Y, Z. It'd be really interesting to see if he comes back and says, well, hang on. I, I doubt it because, you know, he wasn't ex- expecting that answer. Um, we'll probably get another Hancock question. But it'd be interesting to see if Labour can pick up on that and attack the government for, you know, we're only doing 250,000 jabs a day. Why can't we double that? It's interesting. I mean, it, just in terms of Boris Johnson sort of trying to claim that he did get rid of Matt Hancock in uh, the exchange of letters, which always happens. With, I mean, it's to point out that Matt Hancock literally wrote a letter of resignation. He wasn't sacked in reply. Boris Johnson wrote, Dear Matt, thank you for your letter this evening, tendering your resignation. This is on Saturday night. Tendering your resignation as Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. I am sorry to receive it. Uh, Which is not, uh, and then it goes on to say, you should be immensely proud of your service. I'm grateful for your support and believe your contribution to public service is far from over. That's not, dear Matt, uh, good to see the back of you. It's quite right you should go because you broke the rules. Uh, In fact, the whole letter was all about um, all the extraordinary work he'd done. But anyway... We will see. Uh, if uh, I think that might be possibly the shortest question that Keir Starmer's asked. Maybe there's a sign of the Labour opposition, um, operation becoming a bit sharper. Let's go back. Question two from Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, what a ridiculous answer. The, pri- the Prime Minister must have been the only person in the country who looked at that photo on Friday morning and thought that the Health Secretary shouldn't be sacked immediately. <laughs> on Friday, the Prime Minister's spokesperson said... Quote, the Prime Minister considers the matter closed. <laughs> minister after minister were then sent out to defend the indefensible. Yeah. It was brief that the Prime Minister was quite happy for the Health Secretary <laughs> to stay in his post. So can the Prime Minister clarify, now he's got the chance, did he sack the Health Secretary or at any point ask him to resign? Yes or no? Mr Speaker, the Honourable Gentleman will notice that the, the, the Health Secretary has changed uh, in the last five days. He, he, complains about, he complains about the speed uh, with which that happened. This Government moved a positively lightning speed by comparison to the Right Honourable Gentleman opposite, who spent three days trying and failing uh, to, to sack his Deputy Leader, uh, Mr Speaker, who he then, who he then promoted. Who he then promoted, Mr Speaker. He fires and rehires. I mean, he's got some decent lines, albeit, again, not entirely grounded in reality. We should remind uh, listeners of what uh, the Downing Street was saying on Friday, uh, saying this matter uh, was now closed. That Boris Johnson accepted Matt Hancock's apology. This is when it all was broken, uh, the sun on Friday, and considers the matter closed. So it wasn't that Boris Johnson was furious with his apology and thought he should go. Um, he, stu- he positively stood by him. 
Yes, and I don't think I think the the pressure, the political pressure that built from the Conservative backbenches from the public caught Downing Street, and I think it caught Matt Hancock by surprise as well. Um, but as you say, this 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 exchange is, you know, it's a it's a great case study in uh, you know the divergent approaches, approaches of Keir Starmer <laughs> and Boris Johnson. Um, you know, Keir, Keir Starmer is asking very pointed, as you say, uncharacteristically snappy questions, but is it's it's really fascinating, or well, not fascinating, if unsurprising. That Boris Johnson is, you know, it's water off a of back, duck's back stuff. PMQs is what you want to make of it. And for Boris Johnson, it's about getting these uh, personal jives against Keir Starmer to land, fire and rehire being the, the latest that's, in a long line. Yes, that's, that was a reference to Angela Rayner, who, of course, after the, uh, which one was it? Hartlepool. 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 After yeah. the Hartlepool by-election, uh, the people of Hartlepool spoke, and what they said was that Angela Rayner should be moved to <laughs> become the sec- Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. Yes. And countless other titles. Uh, who uh, so it was briefed that Keir Starmer was going to sack her and then she got promoted to a job which doesn't really exist. Anyway, let's go back to the House of Commons and see if uh, any more light could be shone. Uh, will Keir Starmer's questions get any shorter? Uh, Mr Speaker, the, the Deputy Leader is sitting be- beside me. The former, the, former health secretary, the former Health Secretary has done a runner. Oh, Mr Speaker, on Friday the Prime Minister said the case was closed. Then on Monday he tried to take the credit for the Health Secretary's resigning. In a minute, he'll be telling us he scored the winner last night. <laughs> but let me press the Prime Minister a bit more on this. The person the Health Secretary was in a relationship with was his non-executive director. Let me remind the House, according to the Government's own guidance, one of the roles of a non-executive director is to challenge the Secretary of State and the Department, to challenge them, and they receive taxpayers' money for doing so. So from the offset, it was blindingly obvious that there was a conflict of interest here and a whole host of unanswered questions. Why on earth did the Prime Minister judge that this matter was closed on Friday morning? Mr Speaker, I I hesitate to to accuse the Grand Honourable Gentleman of repeating his question. I observe that the non-executive director in question is also uh, no longer uh, with the department. And what what the continuity, Mr Speaker, is that that department is getting on with the fastest vaccine rollout of any... Of uh, 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 any European country, and I'm, actually, I'm proud to tell uh, this House that uh, this week, what, I can tell you what's happened just in the last few days, uh, this country has actually overtaken Israel in the proportion of people we have vaccinated, Mr. Speaker. And I think he might pay tribute to the Health Department for that achievement. Yes, Dharma. <laughs> I bet he doesn't. Um... Uh, so you, I, I can't totally follow the logic of that. If it was all above board, Gina Cola D'Angelo uh, being a non-executive director of the Department of Health, and it was completely unrelated to her relationship with Matt Hancock, presumably she might have stayed as non-executive director. The fact that the pair of them left together does suggest that her role was may have been connected. Yes, and this is the one big unanswered question. As much as uh, senior officials at the Department for Health had have indicated, I think, internally that um, they're happy for it to be made known that um, the proper processes were followed and all conflicts of interest were declared. Um, I think this is still the big unresolved question. Now, I think Boris Johnson's calculation um, is that, as ever, people are, le- are going to be less interested in, you know, worthy, correct um, HR rules followed in this case than they are by outcomes. But the question 
Uh, the, the question is, can, will that line hold on a story that, unlike you know, stories about procurement and others, as you said earlier, has a human face and is such a flagrant and brazen and um, such a flagrant and brazen example of rule breaking, double standards, one rule for them. Whether that line can hold here, I'm not entirely sure. But also, you know, Matt Hancock is gone, as the prime minister kept saying. Has this have people moved on from this story? It's a, it's an interesting question, that, and I suspect I mean part the story's definitely got took you know caught light. Uh, WhatsApp groups across the nation are filled with Matt Hancock memes, but whether or not that has any impact on Boris Johnson, given that he's not there anymore, whether or not people are following the ins and outs of the lobby briefing on Friday versus the letter on Saturday versus the line on Wednesday is a slightly uh, slightly um, separate point. Uh, let's, uh, let us know what you think of PMQ so far. You can text me 87222, start your message the word Times. You can tweet us at Times. It's Matt Shirley joined in the studio by Patrick Maguire, Times Red Box editor. Let's go back to the House of Commons. Uh, Mr Speaker, let me get this right. The Prime Minister was happy to keep a health secretary in place during the pandemic, who he not only thought was absolutely hopeless, but he also knew he had broken the rules and was in a relationship with somebody he was employing at taxpayers' expense. It doesn't sound like case closed to me. And I know the Prime Minister is keen to sweep this under the carpet. But let me tell the Prime Minister why this matters. Millions of people made huge and very difficult sacrifices to follow the rules that his health secretary had introduced. Prime Minister, take the case of Ollie Beebe. I'm sorry, you might want to listen. Ollie died of leukaemia on the 5th of May, the day before the photo of the former health secretary was taken. Ollie died, like so many other people in this pandemic, with his family and friends unable to spend time with him. When he was in hospital, he begged to see his family. But following the rules, only one member of his family was allowed to see him. His mum said, I'm livid. We did everything we were told to do. And the man who made the rules didn't. How can that be right? So I asked the Prime Minister again, how could he possibly think this matter was closed on Friday morning? Mr Speaker, we all share the grief and the pain of Ollie and his family and millions of people up and down the country who have endured the privations uh, that this country has been through in order to get the coronavirus pandemic under control. And that is why uh, we had a change of health secretary the day after the story appeared, uh, Mr Speaker. And that is why, actually, what we are doing as a government, instead of focusing on stuff going on within the Westminster bubble, we are focusing on rolling out that vaccine uh, those vaccines at a, a rate that will make sure that people like Ollie and his family do not have to suffer in the future. And I'm proud to say, as a result of the efforts, as a result of the efforts made by the NHS, by the Department of Health, uh, by July the 19th, we will have vaccinated everybody. Every adult over 18 will have received one jab, and everybody over 40 will have received two jabs, Mr. Speaker. That is the priority of this government, and quite right too. Well, I mean, that was a bit of a change of uh, tone from Keir Starmer. So this is a case that's it's been um, sort of widely reported in the past couple of days of Ollie Bibby. Uh, he'd had uh, leukaemia since 2016. After four years in remission, he relapsed, needed a bone marrow transplant last summer. In March this year, he was admitted to hospital where he stayed for seven weeks until he died. But he said he felt like he was in prison, begged to see his family, but they were barely allowed in, uh, according to his mother. And, of course, 
And the fact that he died the day before uh, that photo of Matt Hancock was taken is just uh, just a reminder of why so many people are so angry about this story. Yeah, look, obviously, as you say, very harrowing story. And it it went some way to exposing the sort of uh, the shonkiness of the PM's line on this, which is nothing to see, but at once, nothing to see here. And um, yes, it was so egregious that um, please infer from this phrasing that I sacked him, even though I'm not going to say I sacked him. You know, it's, there's no wonder that he's deliberately using this phrase of uh, f- this form of words that would imply that he was on board with sacking Matt Hancock from the get-go, even though he wasn't. Um, but yes, it's... I mean, in fact, he, I mean, he went... He sort of drew, actually drew quite a, a sort of pointed connection between the two, and he said that mm. he, 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 you know, felt sorry for everyone who'd gone through what Ollie Bibby's family and millions of others had gone through. That is why we had a change of health secretary uh, on uh, on Saturday, and that's just not right, is it? That's not why we had a change of health secretary because he was happy to stand by him on Friday. Uh, we didn't have a change. Well, of we health... had a, we had a change of health secretary because Matt Hancock concluded that he wanted to. Um spend less time with his family and shack up with a non-executive department of the, <laughs> uh, 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 director of the Department for Health. Like, you know, not because, um, you know, there was a uh, an outbreak of conscience in, in number 10. Um, as you say, it's um, pretty disingenuous for the Prime Minister to claim yeah. as much. Yeah. Somebody's texting in saying the only people still obsessing about Hancock is the self-appointed members of the Westminster bubble. <laughs> if only we were. Yeah. <laughs> in the real world, people don't give it a second thought. Wake up. Which, I mean, given the, you know, the, the story that uh, Keir Starmer's uh, read out, I mean, certainly the family of Ollie Bibby and lots of people in that position still, uh, still seem to care. Even, even people who, you know, even people who haven't hugged their grandkids for 18 months, yes, they've had a jab, but people who have quietly uncomplainingly followed the rules for a year and a half. I mean, we all know someone for whom this story was like a, a red rag to a bull and you don't have to have had um, as horrific an experience as Ollie Beebe to, to think that. Yeah, well, well let's go back and see uh, where uh, Keir Starmer takes this now. Mr Speaker, I can hardly think that the Prime Minister thinks it's appropriate in response to a question about Ollie to suggest that this is, in his words, the Westminster bubble. The Westminster bubble, in answer to that question, Prime Minister? Before Prime Minister's questions this morning, I spoke to Ollie's mum about the awful circumstances that she and her family have been through. She told me, Prime Minister, that every day she watched the press conferences, every day they were on, and she hung on to every word that Government Minister said so that she would know what her family could and couldn't do. And then they followed the rules. This is not the Westminster bubble. She told me that for her and her family, this case isn't closed. And she speaks for millions of people. Ask the Prime Minister to withdraw that when he gets up. Withdraw that when he gets up. It's the wrong response to Ollie's case. I can't help concluding that the Prime Minister didn't ask relevant questions on Friday morning either because he didn't want to know the answers or because he knows full well there's more to come out. Yes. Well, then, he says nonsense. So I asked the Prime Minister, in response to his muttered nonsense, when he declared the case closed on Friday morning, had he asked the Health Secretary if he'd broken any other rules? Yes or no? 
Mr Speaker, let me be absolutely clear with the right honourable gentleman. And I think the whole House and the whole country can see that we have a new Health Secretary in place, and I've had one since the day after the stories appeared, and that was entirely right, and that was, and that was, the, that was the right response to the, to the situation. And he is, of course he's right in what he says about the, the sacrifice made by, by families up and down the land. But the best response, in my view, to their grief and, and their pain and the sufferings that they have endured, is to, uh, which, is, which is, is to get on uh, with a new health secretary, which is what we have, and to, with all the energy and application uh, that we have, to roll out those vaccines and allow the people of this country to work forwards towards Freedom Day, which I devoutly hope will come on July the 19th. And never let it be forgotten, Mr Speaker, that if we'd followed the advice of the right honourable gentleman, that would not be possible, because it was under his proposals that we would have stayed in the European Medicines Agency oh, and been unable, unable to deliver the vaccine rollout at all. Yes, it's always a good uh, tell that Boris Johnson's slightly scraping around for something that he brings up the European Medicines Agency. It's a hardy perennial. I feel, but I feel like, having listened to that, banging my head... Um, against uh, a wall I would do if my head didn't already hurt quite <laughs> as much as it as it as it as it hurts this lunchtime labor really need if I was to give some free advice to uh, to Keir Starmer it would be to really push back on this idea that the vaccine rollout is proceeding at pace that it's going really quickly I mean yes jabs are in arms but the early Whitehall briefings were that uh, you know at the start of the year it was that we'd all be finished by May. It's now the middle of June and there are swathes of the country still unvaccinated. Is Islington, where I live, uh, I think up as many as 40% of the, the borough aren't vac- vaccinated. So there's an open door. There's an open door there. I also think... Um, I also think... I was also struck there by Keir Starmer's, you know, again, his sharpness, picking up on what the Prime Minister had said. Um, really, um, you know, you, you can tell the Prime Minister isn't going to withdraw that remark. Um, and it's a, uh, you know, thinking, to, thinking two steps ahead in a way that he hasn't necessarily, Starmer hasn't necessarily been able to. Or um, and What we haven't had today is a whole sort of flurry of facts and figures and yes, numbers yes, and all exactly. that. It's been much more human and political and just sharper. Maybe that is the reflection of, the, of uh, well, in fact, Luke Sullivan, who's the new, what is he, new political director? New political director. But long time, you know, battler behind the scenes in the Labour Party uh, and maybe has sharpened things up a bit. Yes, exactly. And you also have, um, yeah, you have a whole host of people with experience of doing this stuff. You know, as you say, Luke Sullivan uh, used to run the Labour Whips office, so knows a thing or two about a, a terrible question at PMQs. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he's written plenty of them for MPs in his time. We might be wrongly crediting him, but, uh, but we'll, we'll do it for now. He might not even be up, because I think he was at the football last night. But let's, he was, let, he let's was. Go, let's, go back, let's go back to uh, Keir Starmer's last question. Mr Speaker, I really think that having failed to sack the former Health Secretary, he really is trying to take credit now for the fact that we've got a new Health Secretary. So, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, well, he would, it wouldn't be there if the Prime Minister had his way. The matter was closed. So, Mr Speaker... It's no questions asked by the Prime Minister on Friday and no questions answered today. There's a pattern here. When Dominic Cummings broke the rules by driving to Barnard Castle, the Prime Minister backed him. When the the Housing Secretary unlawfully approved a billion-pound property deal for a Tory donor, the Prime Minister backed him. When the Home Secretary broke the ministerial code, 
the Prime Minister backed her. And when the Health Secretary broke Covid rules, the Prime Minister tried and wanted to back him too. Every time it's the same old story. Isn't it the case, Mr Speaker, that while the British people are doing everything asked of them, it's one rule for them and another rule for everybody else? There's a sound bite. I wonder how he's going to respond. There was a new Health Secretary the following day. Mr. Speaker, the whole country, the whole country can see that, and we are getting on. We are getting on uh, with our agenda of vaccinating the population of this country through the energy and application of, uh, of the new Secretary of State for Health and the Department of Health. And I thank them and I and I congratulate them. And it's as a result of that that vaccine rollout, Mr. Speaker, which, as I say, uh, would have been which would have been impeded, had, uh, fatally impeded, had we followed the, part, the policies of the party opposite. Uh, that we're able uh, now to, we have a higher uh, wall of vaccination than virtually any other country in the world, and we are able to proceed with our cautious, but we hope irreversible, unlocking of the UK economy, uh, with the result, Mr Speaker, that growth is up to levels we haven't seen since last July. Jobs are up. And he, he, calls, he, calls, for us to, he calls for us to act faster in, in removing cabinet ministers, Mr Speaker. Uh, it took him three days, as I say, to give her three new jobs, three new jobs, shadow chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, a shadow secretary of state uh, for the future of work. We create jobs, Mr Speaker. He creates non-jobs. He dithers, we deliver. Oh dear. Um, uh, two things to take away from that. Um, uh, the first motion is about the, the growth. I've, I've got a feeling the, the growth uh, for, is just being downgraded, isn't it, for early this yes, year? Yes, it has. It was it was smaller than the um, than the estimate for the, the first quarter of the year. Yeah. Uh, the other thing uh, that we should touch on is this YouGov poll for Sky News that found that seven ten Labour members think Andy Burner would make a better leader of the Labour Party than Keir Starmer, and four in ten Labour members think Keir Starmer should quit if he loses the by-election tomorrow. Do you think that the, if any of them were watching PMQs today, they might be slightly more reassured? I, I, I think that was uh, a much sharper performance from Keir Starmer. He very much dictated the terms of the discussion, which, as you said earlier, you can... But how comfortable Boris Johnson is feeling on the terrain he's invited onto by Keir Starmer is almost um, inversely proportionate to the number of Woodhousian flourishes and uh, slightly incongruous non-secretaries directed at Keir Starmer, <laughs> of which there were many today. Yeah, we had them all. We had the European Medicines Agency a couple of times. You can tell he's sort of floundering when he has to repeat the, the, the attack lines. He's, he's yeah, when he has used... to go into the pantry and grab any old, uh, any old rubbish... <laughs> uh, that was. I mean, I was gonna. I was gonna. Uh, I was gonna. I don't know what what dish Boris Johnson would be cooking up. He's a big fan of bangers and mash, actually. Is he? Uh, well, we've heard enough about sausages. <laughs> Indeed, his sausage too. Um, uh, well, that that was PMQ's unpacked. Uh, Keir Starmer actually having a decent week. I think it's fair to say. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs> 